Good morning, Emmanuel. Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 20, 22, 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, I want you to think about holiness in life. That's verses 15 and 16, the invitation to be holy. I wonder um, what emotional response you have to the word holy. Some of us uh, conceive of it in different ways, and some of them can be negative. If you think of holiness as moral perfection, then that's not entirely wrong. Um, but depending on what your church background is and what your perception is, if, if you think of it as moral perfection, you, you may think, oh, this is a, a sermon that's going to remind me that I'm, I'm never good enough. I need to try harder. Uh, or maybe if you think of holiness as religious conformity, you think of that as a distinctly religious word, and maybe as an outsider, you thought, you think of holiness as, oh, this is a group of people who want me to become more like them. And so the invitation to holiness doesn't sound exciting and freeing. It sounds like you can't be yourself, that you have to be like whatever other Christians are. And so it's not inspiring. Maybe you think of holiness as an arrogant superiority, people that are holier than thou. That's kind of uh, an accusation we make against somebody who's arrogant. Uh, they're holier than thou. And so maybe you think an invitation to holiness um, is an expression of what the churches often does, which is to produce arrogant people who think they're better than others. And so depending on, on how you conceive of what holiness is and what your experience with the church has been or otherwise, um, maybe it's not inspiring. Maybe it's something that gives you pause or makes you nervous or anxious. And without a doubt, the church is guilty of failing in all of those areas, of, of making people perform, of producing arrogant people, of, uh, form, of making people conform to uh, really cultural patterns rather than... Uh, things that are truly biblical or of God. Surely we're guilty of all of those things, but we're not uniquely guilty in that. The reality is, sociologically, every human group does that. So one of the ways we understand holiness in the Bible is, is to be set apart. God is holy, meaning God is unlike us or anything in creation. And the call to be holy is an invitation into the life of God, but it's, a, it's an invitation that then sets you apart. It repurposes you. So that will include a new morality. It will include a new community and being shaped by them. It will include a new perspective on what's right and wrong. All of those things are there. But when the church doesn't do this in a response to God's invitation, when holiness is not in the life of God, but it's just like any other community does where we say, we're going to find out what our rules are, we're going to keep them, and we're going to be proud of ourselves, and we're going to look down at others who don't keep the same rules. Well, the church does that, but every uh, social human group does that as well. And you could uh, pick any group in society that's advocating for anything today and find, yeah, they come up with their own rules. 
And if you don't, you know, and there's pressure to conform to them, and if you don't join them, they will alienate you or exclude you or ridicule you. Uh, that's happening everywhere. The church is meant to be different in that our concept of holiness is not this human invention, this idea that we come up with our own rules because we've found what makes us better than other people, and then we create a line where we welcome people in or we marginalize them and keep them out. Uh, but the picture in the Bible is, well, God is uniquely holy, and there's the entirety of humanity separated. And God is calling us into his life, but to join him in his perfections, in his power and grace and all of these things, it requires a number of things, including forgiveness, transformation, cleansing, uh, learning, all of these things. And, and yet what it should produce, uh, holiness and godliness are together, which is the more power and authority and greatness we have, uh, the more kind and merciful and um, helpful we should be because the call is to be like God. And so um, we're looking at First Peter, and as a church, we're spending time, uh, this season talking about spiritual vitality because you see that clearly throughout the book where um, one of the images is, is it's like being reborn to a living hope. We sang about that in the last song, but that's First Peter 1, I think, verse 3. Uh, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's, there's, there's a life that's given to us, a quality of life and a dynamism in it that is meant to make us alive and give us vibrance, but also where to live differently. And that difference, that being set apart, um, is, is part of the, the calling of the Christian life. And so in the passage we're looking at today, there are these, there's calls to action, to behaving differently. Now, this is the sixth sermon in the series. We spent five weeks making sure that we have some foundation of understanding God and what he's done before we, we uh, think that the, the essence of the Christian life is a call simply to have your behavior shaped. Um, that, in fact, is one of the problems that we have because we live by sight rather than by faith. Often what we're doing is, is we're managing behavioral issues. Um, and certainly, as Christians, we do that. We think, what does it mean to live the Christian life? Well, uh, there's all these invisible things God did for me, that the announcement of forgiveness, those sorts of things. But now, I need to manage my own moral change. Uh, and what happens there is we wind up having one of two trajectories. If we're successful in it, we wind up experiencing arrogance. And if we're not successful, which is most likely, then we wind up demoralized and defeated. And then the function of Christianity, the function of religion, is to help us to manage those emotions. That's what we look for. We look for, you know, being, when you're arrogant, you feel less of a need. But um, arrogance has its own penalty built into it. You can't be an arrogant person. Uh, and, and there's certain moments of confidence where you feel on top of the world, but you can't sustain arrogance and thrive in any way. And so even the arrogant will look to some of the comforting components of Christianity just to, to take some of the edge off. But, but those of us who are failing, which is more likely to happen, especially if you really get it, if you really have high standards, the sense that we're never good enough, then what we're looking for in Christianity is something to make me not feel so bad. And we get the dynamic wrong because we're, we're focused on external things and what I can see and the outward changes. Peter presents a vitality that comes from the inside. God does a work in you that it's a gift of grace. And, and this, this concept of grace that's so alien to us, it comes from God and, and God invites us into it, then helps us to start to see in ways that are not just external and superficial. And as our eyes are opened, as we start to see other things, then there's a dynamic, there's a life in us. So we're not just, imagine, uh, we're not just managing our stresses or our failures or our guilt but we're experiencing the kind of freedom then that allows us to actually be good, to conduct ourselves in right ways. And so verse 13, the therefore, so in light of the things that we've been looking at as a church, and if you haven't been here, just read the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. But therefore, preparing your minds for action. So now he's going to encourage us. Uh, if God has done something that has made you different, you have a different identity, a different hope, a different destiny, everything surrounded by this, these wonderful things. So then be prepared. Be prepared to act differently. So verse 15 says, Be holy in your conduct, 
Verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This idea of exile. Um, uh, we live in this period where God has began a work and yet it's not yet fulfilled and completed. So he says, sit your hope on that uh, fully on the grace that's to be revealed. And in the meantime, now, conduct yourselves in a different way. God has set you apart. And so find out what that life is. Live that dynamic life out of the spirit. Uh, and so in talking about that today, I want to talk about two things. One is, is the former life, and then the, the second is the new life. And I'm using the language of the passage. What have we been ransomed from? That's first. And what are we called to? That's second. The language of ransom and calling are in the passage. So we're going to begin. What have we been ransomed from? What is the nature of the life that God says, I'm calling you out of this? into new life with me, and we're going to get a vision throughout this book of the possibilities of a vibrant, good, healthy life. Um, but what is the human condition? And I would say, you know, as a, as a reflection question for you, um, now 19, 20 months, or however long it's been since we've, we've had shelter in place and COVID has, um, has had a, an effect on all of us, um, what words would you use to describe your experience uh, of this and, and how you're experiencing life now? Um, there was an article last April in the New York Times that introduced a term, a word, that people, at least people I was in touch with, I don't, I don't know, uh, you know, outside of New York, but people I was in touch with, uh, found this term, this one term, put a label on so much of what they were experiencing. I wonder if some of you might immediately know what it is. The term languishing. There was an article that said that what we're experiencing now is languishing because many of us would say, oh, we're depressed. But, but depression as a mental health category has certain criteria uh, and saying, well, well, maybe. There are a lot of people depressed. If you were depressed before the pandemic, it's not surprising you'd be depressed during it. Uh, maybe the pandemic put enough stresses on you that you could be diagnosed in some sort of way. But are we all depressed? Um, the article was saying that there, there's a more accurate term. Um, the bulk of us are languishing. It's a little different. It's a little different. It's not a, it's not a diagnosable mental health category. Um, it's more of this phenomenon to say, we're not flourishing, we're not thriving, um, but there's something in us that we just don't have energy. We don't have a real hopefulness. We don't see the purpose of going on. Uh, uh, maybe a more generic term that's not as interesting, but I think we're experiencing boredom. And boredom on its own is not terrible. Good things happen within boredom, but when boredom characterizes not just moments of your day or short periods of your life, but but it's become sort of who we are. It's hard to say, well, is that depression? Maybe, um, but maybe it's something different. There's something that COVID did where, where on the one hand, it's completely understandable, the nature of the disease, the anxiety, all of the, the breakdowns and things like that. But it's worth asking the question in a city like New York, how much of it was coming from what was happening and how much of it was simply the things that we had been doing to keep ourselves busy and pre preoccupied were taken away from us. Now you can't go to the theater, you can't go to a show, you can't go to a, a, a restaurant, you can't go to a bar and meet a friend. So now that you can't do any of those things, um, ha has your life fundamentally changed in your identity, your hope, your outlook? And it's worth saying that, that we're experiencing languishing now, but is, is it only because we're first seeing that without running after the next most exciting thing, that there is a fundamental emptiness to life that we just don't want to see uh, because it's too painful, it's too impossible to confront. And so the better thing to do is just to keep ourselves busy. Um, this article was based on the, 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 the term languishing was coined by a sociologist named Corey Keyes. Uh, and her description, uh, this was, I think she might have wrote this about 20 years ago, I'm not, not positive, but she talks about languishing as a state in which an individual is devoid of positive emotion toward life and is not functioning well either psychologically or socially and has not been depressed during the past year. She's making a distinction here. In short, languishers are neither mentally ill nor mentally healthy. That's the thing. It's not simply something we could say, we could diagnose this and here's a plan to fix it. Um, but we're recognizing the markers of that you're not flourishing, you're not doing 
It's neither mental illness nor mental health. It's this other thing, and it's the kind of thing that um, if you've been part of Emmanuel for a couple of years, a year or two ago, we did a series uh, over, over a long stretch in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't read that book, that's a book that really, I mean, it was written quite a long time ago, but it connects with the modern experience. It asks the question, what gain is there for all of our toil? See, work in the Bible is good. Be fruitful, multiply. The world is filled with good things to do, but the language of toil, it's not simply that it's hard, but that question, what gain is there? After all the hard workers will do the hard work and make sacrifices as if there's gain. But the writer of Ecclesiastes says it feels like we're chasing wind. We're trying to grasp something that we can never take hold of. And so there are these images in the book, like the rivers always flow into the sea, but the sea is never full. What is this? Why is the, the waters are always going, but the sea doesn't overflow? And, and what is it about our lives that we're always running after something, and just when we feel like we've gotten it, we're still not full? And so the declaration is vanity, or sometimes it's translated meaningless, this sense that we're we're trying to grasp a vapor. We're, we're running after the wind. Um, is that something we go through in general seasons, or is it part of the human condition? The book of Ecclesiastes gives a portrait of somebody who says he pursues the various things we pursue. He's, he pursued pleasure, wealth, power, all of these things. And the report is from somebody who achieved these things, a unique individual, this king over Israel, how he's presented. Um, his report is, but, but nothing filled that void, that emptiness. Everything felt like I was constantly chasing wind. And so, um, what are we ransomed from? Verse 18 and 19, um, he's talking about what we now know. If you understand what we're invited to in Christianity, you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And if you're wondering who are our forefathers, if you just begin at the start of the Bible, the name Adam means humanity. So there's a story of humanity, this human story where we inherit these ways, these ways that are, are in some ways expressed in the human story wherever we go. There are distinctions in different times and different places, but, but very similar desires and very similar crimes are happening all over the place. There are these futile ways. And it's that concept of futility. Uh, the, the, the sense of a, a meaninglessness, a, a lack of production. Um, there's something about the, the human experience that we need rescuing from because when you're languishing, how do you get yourself out? Well, you don't have the energy, you don't have the insight, you can't make sense of the experience. The picture is, well, we're ransomed from that. Christianity, uh, the invitation to follow Jesus is a call to, to step out of life as we know it along with the futile ways that we hold on to, hoping that they will give us life, but actually they only tend to perpetuate the problem. And so, in verse 14, I'm going to spend just a few minutes looking at verse 14. The call to holiness involves this call. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So, he's writing to people who have said, you've been ransomed, you've been called out of this into a new way of life, and, and now don't continue to be molded and shaped by the passions of your former ignorance. And so I'm just going to look at three sort of subheadings here. One is the concept of ignorance. Part of the human problem is uh, the limitations of what we know and see and understand. Now, God has made human beings with the capacity for wisdom, for knowledge. We're given intelligence, which means we can discover great things. And so there are so many things that we have come to know and so many things that we've learned but the question is, how do we pull it all together? What does it all mean? And that's what we can't agree on as a people. And that's where, where we still find that there are things that, that it, where, where human being is, is finite. There's only a capacity to take on, you know, that this is the problem now with all of this data we're generating. Who, who, who could examine it all? And so, so now we're generating all of this stuff that we, we still can't take it all in. Uh, well, uh, that's been the story of humanity. So there's a problem of ignorance and the ignorance involves not simply the inability to know all the facts, but, but there's a personal component where God is not simply that we are to know about God, because knowing about God would be very instructive. What is God like? If we could uh, find those principles and do them, that would improve our lives. We're not just to know about God, but we're to know God. Uh, but there's this experience of ignorance of, of what does that really mean? How, how, 
do I, the small person, relate to this invisible God, the creator of the heavens and the earth? And that lack of knowledge leaves us searching for some sense of transcendence, some sort of value, some sense that my life is more than just a, a short walk on this earth. Uh, and there's a problem of ignorance. So here, here's a question for you as, as, as we think about this. Why did God make it so that there are no stars above New York City? Seems a bit unfair. You can go to parts of the country uh, or parts of the world where you could, you could lay down on the grass and you could look up into the sky and you can marvel. Look at the stars, that light coming from millions of miles away, uh, going so fast and yet it's getting here years later. Uh, and there are these constellations and the patterns and there's this transcendence that people who have this relaxed lifestyle, who live close to nature, are able to look up in the stars. Why don't we have them in New York? Well, we do have them. Uh, there's not a, a, a gap in, in the sky. Uh, you know, there's a little instructive things. The, the Earth is a globe. It revolves. There are a couple of things. I won't, I won't bother going through the details, but we're, we are going to have a Sunday school class where I'm going to teach some principles of astronomy, but that's still in the <laughs> making. That, that might be 2022 before we do that. I'm joking. You don't want me to teach anything with astronomy. Uh, but of the little that I do know, the issue is not that there's an absence of stars above us. It's that we can't see them because of what's sometimes termed light pollution. Um, we, have, we generate so much light within our city that it's not that the stars aren't there, it's just uh, this concept of pollution I think is helpful. There's just so much light that it just washes it out so the stars are there but we can't see it. So instead, for that experience of transcendence, do you ever go down to uh, you know, a 20 or 30 story apartment building and look with marvel at all of the light uh, coming out of the windows of, you know, of the 70% of the apartments that may have their lights on? I mean, actually, you could. When you think of, of, of the complexity of generating electricity and getting it up there and the invention of the light bulb, there, there's so many wonderful things. Is that something you do? Do you, do you sit there and look in an apartment building and marvel and say there's something greater in this world. I think you could do that, but I don't know that any of us has ever done that. <laughs> um, human light is amazing, but it doesn't capture our hearts the ways that the light of the stars do. And so we live in a city where there's human greatness everywhere, genuine greatness. It really is impressive. Think about what uh, smart, talented, hardworking New Yorkers are able to do. It's fantastic. But is it causing wonder? Is it causing a life-giving stirring in your souls? Or is it causing a kind of pollution that's keeping you from seeing anything that's truly great? And there are people in parts of the country that are content with the simplicity of their lives to look up and say, wow, what a marvelous world we live in. Well, if we wanted to create a list of the number of amazing things we have access to, you know, how many places could compete with us, and yet there's something glorious that we just don't see. I'm using that um, not to cri criticize our city, but to talk about this concept of light pollution. I think the word pollution is helpful because the, the Bible uses terms like sin or corruption. The idea that, yeah, there are these negative dark things, but there are all these human things that are great, but, but when our ultimate hope is in that, when that's all that we see, then there's a greatness that we never see. And if we don't see the greatness of God, not because God is not there, where is God? We don't know, he's not there. He's there, we just don't see him. And the inability to see and know God leaves us empty because God created us to bear his image, to reflect him. We are to see God and to be like him and that's where we come alive, that's where there's a fullness. We don't see God. And so we wind up in this cycle of desperately seeking after any place that we could see greatness because we long for it, but nothing we look to is great enough. And then the pattern begins of languishing as the human condition. So on the one hand, there's ignorance of God. Do we know God? Do we see God? None of us do, uh, as we should, but, the, but, but God shows himself to us, which starts to awaken us, but then we learn to live by faith, to see him. That, that causes us to grow, causes us to come to life, but... There's an ongoing struggle because of our ignorance. But here's the second thing from verse 14. Uh, there's also our passions. 
And so, so the verse says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There are desires that we have. Some desires are problematic. We all know that. But some of our desires are very good, but there's pollution, there's corruption, that we desire good things, but, um, but the, those desires go astray, and then what happens is they rule over us. We become desperate. We become so dissatisfied, we will do anything to satisfy those cravings, and that's where our moral breakdowns happen when we turn against one another. Um, uh, interesting thing about this concept of boredom, um, boredom produces craving. And certainly if you look at people in the cycle of addiction, what is it? Well, there's chemical dependence in certain addictions. There are, there are other things. But really, one of the most vulnerable places is when somebody hits a spot of boredom, that, that the, the discomfort of having nothing that excites you, nothing that stimulates you, then stirs that craving for a response. And it could be if you've form the habits with drugs and alcohol or smoking, it could be shopping, it could be food, uh, it could be an endless search on some quest for information on the internet. We get very uncomfortable in that state of boredom, that state of feeling that there's an emptiness. We want to fill that emptiness. Now that's good. We have desires that we should go out into the world. You shouldn't stay at home and feel that you're at peace and then just you know, never get up and, and take a shower or, or have a meal. But, but that's not um, where most of us exist. Most of us exist trying to avoid that feeling of emptiness, that isolation. And so in that, we create this pattern where, where a desire is a sign of life, and therefore we need to act on it so we don't feel the emptiness. And we have these patterns where our cravings rule over us, and we're subject to do the things that our minds tell us don't do it. And yet there's this desperation for some satisfaction, and therefore we do what we don't want to do, what we know we should not do, or what others tell us not to do. And part of it is ignorance. We don't see God and we're not fulfilled. Part of it is um, these passions. And it's not just Christians that have, have reflected on this. This is anyone reflecting on human nature. The, in the context of the writing of the Bible, you had Plato and you had the Stoics, but in the broader world, you had, uh, you know, coming out of Hinduism and, and uh, other conceptions of how do we find a meaningful life? You have Buddhism. You know, what is it about our desires? Are our desires fundamentally what causes suffering? And I think, you know, sort of modern pop culture will say, yeah, Buddhism is right because we can see that, that desire leads to suffering. But we start to think that enlightenment means to be free of desire. Except that we now would say, actually, being free of desire is not enlightenment. That's depression. So languishing, you have these desires that are dissatisfied. The goal is not to be free of all desire. The goal is not to be ruled by your desires because they're not trustworthy. To have no desire is not to live. Christianity calls you to be alive, uh, to have renewed desires, to desire good things and to know where they can be satisfied. It's in our ignorance that we can't manage this, we can't figure it out. And so, so the last thing here is we wind up conformed. The, it, our passions combined with ignorance means that we wind up being shaped by the things we desire. That becomes our identity. That's how we talk about identity today. What is it you most fundamentally long for and desire? Well, that's who you are. Um, the ancient traditions, nearly all of them would say, boy, that's a, a bad way to build an identity because your desires are not trustworthy. Christians would come in and say, well, desire is not itself the problem, but pollution, corruption is. Your desires should be satisfied, but, but you're building an identity in ignorance apart from um, the, the one whose image you are made in. And therefore, it's not to cut off desire, but we have to resist sinful desire, but we want to have them replaced by godly desires. And so we wind up being shaped, being conformed by the things that we want, because when, when you want something desperately, until you're satisfied, you will look to the things that will provide that. And so in the ancient context, uh, they were religious people, they looked to idols. And so if what, I, if what we really need is rain, because this is an agricultural society and God doesn't give us, give it, let's look to some conception of what will give us hope. If we want fertility, if you look at you know, the cultures throughout the ages, what is it we desperately want? Human beings create some conception, some image, and devote themselves to it. Modern people think of ourselves as not being religious and therefore we don't form literal idols, but 
Um, what is it you want and what will get it for you? One of the reasons the Bible warns us about the love of money. Here's something that, um, where there's an image on it that's created, that we have this conception that if I can have that, then I can have the things that will satisfy me. And what happens, the, the warning of Jesus is not that there's something inherently wrong in the money. It's in our cravings and in our ignorance that then we devote ourselves to it. And it's that concept of devotion. Money is not a living thing. You don't devote yourself to something that's not living. Money can't give you anything. Money is a, is a means towards something. And so if you devote yourself, if your behaviors are changed, your time is changed, your hopes are changed, because you think something like money will satisfy it, then money becomes the idol. It becomes a, a human thing that you devote yourself to. You're being conformed by the culture of people who will tell you how to get money. Money is one example, but you can think of any of the things in society, fame, sex, any of the kinds of things that we say, these things will help us to fill the void, get what we want, give us meaningful lives. The warning is, if any of those things are not the, the one who created you, who you cannot create, if you're creating something, well then, your life is being conformed. You're being ruled by those desires. And, and the warning is you will become like the thing you've devoted yourself to. Do you want to become like money? I mean, money's lifeless. It's a devoted thing. Do you want to become like a celebrity who has a public persona but a private reality that is different? And so uh, let me read to you from Psalm 115. This is verses four to eight, the same thing in Psalm 135. Speaking of the idols, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That's the concern. Uh, when you make these things, you become like them. And in our ignorance, because of our desires, we wind up conforming things to our desires, and we wind up conforming to them. It creates, in the same way that the relationship with God, when we, when we look to God, we start to become like Him. If we look to something else as our ultimate hope, we will become like it. And if you're devoting yourself to something that's not living and breathing, don't be surprised if your experience is that it doesn't feel like you are living and breathing. Our languishing is coming from the emptiness that we don't know what life is. And so are you feeling lifeless? I think all of us are, even in the church where many of us know these things, but we get caught up, we don't devote ourselves the right way, we don't act consistently. Uh, it's a constant struggle. So, so what are we ransomed from? We're, we're ransomed from these futile ways inherited by our fathers. We're, we're ransomed from a humanity that knows that we feel passionately uh, but cannot find what will satisfy it and therefore we create things that wind up taking life away. Um, so where I want to go now is to the second part of the sermon, to what we are called to. So we are ransomed from futile ways of life. That's part of the invitation to follow Jesus. Come and in me you will have life. And we think of it only as days without end. You know, instead of death being an end, we'll keep going. Jesus pictures so much more than that. He's talking about um, coming into your lives and, and, and bringing the spirit into your heart and mind to renew you, to give you new desires, new hopes, so that you are not somebody who's subject to languishing, but, but you could begin to flourish. So in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed. And so that, that language of obedience right there, let me pause there, because it, it strikes us in a way um, that highlights the human problem, which is, in our ignorance, we don't really understand God, His greatness, His fullness. And therefore, when we begin to look towards God um, sincerely, uh, we still project so much of our experiences and our desires onto God that we wind up misunderstanding God. And and so when we think of, well, who in the world, what are the examples of people with power and authority who require obedience? Obedience is the language of the military. Obedience is the language of the dictator. Obedience is the language of people who command that you become like them because they want to control you. And so we step out and then God says, now I want you to be obedient to me. And it's natural for us to get nervous. 
Because what do we know other than every model of obedience requiring something that's not in our own interest? And so the call to holiness, we timidly think I need to submit. It says as obedient children. The concept of children there changes the dynamic. Um, because God relates to you not as the most powerful deity in the universe that commands your conformity, but as a father who wants you to become part of his family. Be holy because I am holy. This is what I am like. I want you to take on my likeness. And therefore, children have a problem of being ignorant. They just don't understand certain things. They don't have life experience. They don't have the mental capacities to learn about certain things. And therefore, Parents sometimes selfishly require obedience. I'm trying to, to carve out an area of comfort for me, so I'm gonna create some rules that I'm just gonna tell you you need to keep because I'm tired. We're all guilty of that, uh, parents at least. Uh, the, the goal, though, is protective. Why do I want my child to listen to my voice, but to trust me? Because I am to protect my child. I'll use an example, not from parenting, but from owning a dog. I had no idea we got a dog last year. You need to train a dog, the dog needs to be obedient. And yes, there are selfish things about, I don't want to take you out in the middle of the night and so I'm gonna train you to go to the bathroom in certain fixed times and there are things that are, are part of the negotiation. But I never realized how much of owning a dog requires protection. You know, I thought going for a walk was, oh, we're just gonna go out there and, and not realizing that in the neighborhood I live in, I, I never knew how many chicken bones there were on the sidewalk. I'm now aware because my dog can find them out and wants to eat them and will choke or have, you know, have some problem. My daughter took a Band-Aid off, put it on the table. The dog, without her even having a second throw, went over and ate the Band-Aid. Why would you eat a Band-Aid? That makes no sense. There's, there's nothing that tastes good, that smells good. What a weird thing to do. I did not know I would be signing up as a dog owner to to take responsibility for a living being, that now I have to keep my dog from eating a Band-Aid. Um, so I now have to exercise a protective function where I want the dog to work with me. Um, yeah, I have to grapple with my own selfishness, but fundamentally the responsibility I have is to, to care for, to protect this dog. So, so what does it mean when, when we're told, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance? We're, we're, we're told, well, the you were obedient to your passions, but, but that was not freedom. It felt like freedom because you thought, I want this, so therefore I'm gonna pursue it. And then when somebody said, no, don't pursue it, you realize, but I still want it, now I can't not pursue it. And that's when we realize, wait a second, we've got a problem. And then we step out, and the only thing we know is that model, so we think when God asks for obedience, oh, God is just somebody else who's trying to control us, but this is where, where grace is important. It's as obedient children. God is like a father who now, unlike the rulers and powers of this world, that either want to oppress or at least want to negotiate some mutually beneficial deal. God is like a father who gives us life. And so this model of being born anew, God nurtures us like an infant needs to be nurtured. And we're to grow to where we learn and we can act uh, on our own, but it takes his watching over us. And so verse 18 and 19, we were ransomed from these feudal ways, but not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And the imagery here is imagery of the biblical story, and, and most of us don't really know the story so well that we're able to see these subtle allusions, but, but, but here, here's a, one of the big background sources for that kind of statement. It's the story of the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, it begins with God's people crying out. Uh, they're slaves. And, and, and you read what, what the, the shape of the slavery that they uh, lived in looked like. It, it was, now we are going to create a quota for your work, and we're going to make it harder for you, and we're going to kill the male children because we don't want you to, to, to get so large that you could rebel against us. So here's the context of God's people crying out. Lord, help us. This is overwhelming. And the book of Exodus is about God coming up, uh, coming in. And he sends Moses, the prophet, to speak a word to Pharaoh, the one who's in charge of this, the most powerful one, uh, who's forcing this kind of obedience. And the message is, let my people go, that they may worship me. 
And Pharaoh's response is, no, you will stay here and serve me because if I let you go, you'll never come back. So don't go worship the Lord, stay here and serve me. But in Hebrew, the word is the same for worship and serve because those go together. But when you're worshiping God, there's gladness. When you're serving a human leader, there's not. And so that's why it's translated that way. It could be translated, let my people go that they may serve me. Uh, no, they'll stay here and serve me, except that the idea is it's for a festival. So worship is appropriate. And Pharaoh says, stay here and that they will serve me. But it wouldn't be wrong to recognize that he's implying they're going to stay here and worship me. They're going to be devoted to me. I am the highest authority. I'm the one that they need to honor. And so God gives all these warnings, all these signs, and eventually brings judgment. Death is going to come to these people because they are because they are bringing death uh, to, the, to these people. And so what will happen? Death will come to everyone. And, and here's the thing. Death will come to everyone in the book of Exodus. So how is God going to deliver his own people who are being killed and not kill them himself? Well, he gives them instructions. He says, for you, I'm giving instructions that there will be a substitute. You are to sacrifice a lamb. And then take the blood of that lamb and put it on your door. And when death comes through, the description of this angel who's coming in order to free you, who brings judgment, will not bring death to your household. Why? Because there was a lamb that died in your place. Death already came to this household. But instead of it coming to a person, God is going to provide a means of substitute. When Peter tells us that we have been ransomed, you know, that image is, is the image of liberation. It's the image of, of you have been, been kept um, in a way that you had no ability to get yourself out of it. You've been ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. So this is an image. It's not that God buys us in that way. But you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. The blood is the life. Jesus comes and he gives his life. You've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And so the story is that we are born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's 1 Peter 1.3. Where does this living hope come from? Where does this life come from? It's through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We were ransomed through his suffering death. He comes not to give us silver and gold, but to give us his very life. He sheds his blood like a spotless lamb. And then you go and you read the Old Testament about this very complex sacrificial system that was to be a sign of what one God would one day do. Um, the sign is that he sends his own son into the world who loves us enough that he offers himself in our place, that judgment won't come to us. We won't suffer death, but that he will fill our lives with good things by offering himself in our place. And through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have new life, born again to a living hope. That's the thing we have trouble grasping. What is the nature of how this works? That, that our, de our situation is so desperate, but God is so merciful. That God provide, provided this means where however we try to conceive of it, the cost to him, uh, and that's why this language of ransom, he paid everything, is our way of understanding. Uh, our natural inclination is, what does God require of me in order to reward me? And it's the wrong way of thinking. And so, so that's where so much of growth in Christianity is real learning. God doesn't expect you to pay off your debt. You can't. Uh, but God ransoms you. He, he calls you out of that into his life. And that's the language of calling. Verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And so now you need to learn to live this new life. And so if you think about the Hebrews in Egypt, all that they knew was oppression. So now they get brought out and they're told, construct your own society. What models do they have? Well, who of us is going to be in charge? How do we get people to do what we like? Um, they would not have been any different from the Egyptians. So they were given these commandments. And we so naturally think about these are the commandments I need to keep so that God will free me, so God will be pleased. God brings them out of Egypt because God has compassion, not because they earned his favor, but because he had made a promise to their forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Bringing them out, he brings them to the mountain and gives the Ten Commandments. And they begin not, first of all, with the rule, but with the declaration. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now have no other gods 
You know, because Pharaoh is the only thing you know about a divine power, and you're going to strive to be like him. And, and our people will be like their people. Israel will become like Egypt. You can't do this. You need to trust me. And therefore, uh, in your ignorance, you need to believe that as a father who has now made you my own, I will guide you. But sometimes what I tell you is not going to make sense. I'm not trying to oppress you. I'm the one person in this universe who is trying to just keep giving. And so you're going to need to trust me. And therefore, if I am holy, if I am unlike anyone in the world, you're going to need to relearn what it looks like to live in this world so long as you have days on this earth. And it's a call to holiness, to call to be different from who you were, but to become like the one who was sent in our place, Jesus Christ. And it's that study, that vision of who is Jesus, what is he like, that helps us understand the call of holiness. Jesus was set apart, unlike anyone who ever lived, and he is glorious. And therefore, the one who called you is holy, he wants you to be holy, and therefore the Christian call is a call out of a languishing life into a life that is filled with glory and honor, and it requires obedience because we have to learn, but the obedience has as its goal God's protection and God's moving us forward so that we would flourish. And so verse 20 and 21 reminds us that even in the context of saying you need to, to live differently, the foundation is always the greatness of what God has for us. So in saying that Jesus offered himself, it says, he who is foreknown, are you ignorant? <laughs> uh, whether somebody who's known, Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time. You're now being shown, you're not left in darkness and ignorance, but God will show you himself. He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. It's we who have the problem, not God who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. If our problem is ignorance and boredom, we're told that we now have knowledge of glory. God revealed himself through Jesus Christ, uh, the perfect one who laid down his life. All of this was for you so that you would know the nature of the God who invites you into his life. And therefore, becoming like obedient children. You know, there's an interesting thing about children. If they love something, they could do it again and again and again. What is it about us as we mature that we constantly get bored and need to move on to the next thing? Uh, G.K. Chesterton talks about this, uh, about the energy that a child has. And I just want to leave you with this because I think it could remind us... Um, not to just chase the next novel thing, but to, but to rejoice in what's been given to us so that it would produce life. Chesterton says, a child kicking his legs rhythmically through excess, I'm sorry, a child kicks his legs rhythm, rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in, a spirit, it, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want to do things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. Um, in the same way that we suffer a light pollution, um, there are glorious things that, that, that some people never tire of looking up at the stars and marveling. Um, the call to worship God, we have to understand that God is holy. We're not worshiping a created being. We, devote, we give worship to no one else. But we worship God in his holiness because of the glory, because of the majesty. And what we're told is that Jesus was sent to, to open our eyes and to invite, invite us into that life. And therefore, yes, come and bring a new song to the Lord. <laughs> Monotony is not a good on its own. But we will never get tired of just returning and saying, look at the precious lamb without spot, without blemish, who gave himself for us. When we understand that our Father invites us into a family to remold us, then the ordinary things of let's just come again on Sunday 
and seek him. Let's come in prayer and say, Lord, show yourself to me. Lord, I am experiencing an emptiness. Fill me with something that will satisfy me. Help me not to run after the next distracting thing. Um, but help me to keep focused on what's truly glorious. And the call to obedience and the call to holiness is to remove pollution. <laughs> what are the foolish things that we run after again and again for the next new thing? We're told that's part of the pattern of languishing. It's boredom, it's craving, it's an ongoing dissatisfaction because you're empty. God says, look to me and I will fill you. And when you're full, well, then there's an overflow. Then obedience is not what God requires so that you can earn his favor. Obedience is you're going into the world with confidence. God will protect me. And if he is holy, let me be holy in this corrupt world in order to shine some glory into the life of my languishing neighbor. Can I bring something of the goodness, of the, of the love and mercy of God to me in my imitative actions to those around me? So verse 13, preparing your minds for action. This is what we come together to do on Sunday. Let's consider the greatness of its promise to us, but now let's prepare ourselves this week for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's more to see, there's more to learn, and it's gracious. There's one place that there's grace. It comes as a gift from God. We set our hope fully there, and God fills us week by week, and then we go out with whatever fullness we have, and we, we live out of that life. We don't go into the world seeking life. We go into the world living life. That's the call to follow Jesus. Follow him. Let me pray. Our Father, with honesty, we come here today as languishing people, as depressed people, as failing people, all of these things. Lord, but as longing people, some of us, you, you've shown that grace and glory, you've given us that life, we've tasted it, we want more of it, and so renew that in us. Some of us may still be asking for the first time where to get this hope and not really understand how it comes into our lives. Show them. Lord, we pray that this would be a day of opening of eyes, of, of taking away ignorance, of instructing us, but of showing us glory and holiness, Lord, and cleanse us so that we're ready to receive it, so that we're not destroyed by it, but that something of the majesty of who you are would, would touch something in us so that we would go back into the world energized, ready for the great things that life offered and not swindled by the confusing temptations of what the world will try to sell us on. Lord, help us to understand holiness so that we live radically, that our actions are devoted and consistent and vibrant and that we trust you enough that wherever there's a tension between what we desire and what we know is right, that we will seek you uh, and the power of your spirit to give us the ability to do what's right and to trust the fruitfulness of your ways and to learn from the fruitlessness of our old ways. Help us to have that wisdom. Do that work in us, Lord. We, we confess uh, that we're not strong enough on our own, uh, but in Christ, you will give us that strength. Strengthen us. May we go out this week, Lord. Prepare us to love someone, to exercise patience, to to be generous. Lord, I don't know what any of us will face this week, but whatever difficulty, whatever challenge, whatever opportunity, may we go out with that sense of holiness, that we go out with you in fellowship with you and that, that you will work. And so give us the joy of seeing you at work in our lives this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.